morning, everyone. I don't know. I still, like, you can't beat our women's series this summer, like, walking up to Katy Perry. So I don't know how. I don't know. It's a little different. Um, well, yeah, I'm, I'm so privileged. I'm Adrian again. Uh, and I'm so privileged to be up here and to get to share with you again today. Uh, I've had the opportunity to speak, like, twice, I don't know, in the last six months, year, something like that. But today's a little different because I'm going to be sharing something that is really important to me because it's something that's been a part of my life from pretty much as long as I can remember. So as we continue the series today, i got to find my clicker. As we uh, continue the series today, we're going to discuss mental health. So as I begin today, I'm going to share some statistics and some history and some facts. And I, I love psychology. I, I minored in psychology. I teach a psychology class online. Um, so I'm interested in that piece. But as I share this, these facts and statistics and things like that, just know that I very much myself realize that each of these numbers represents a person that is struggling with real pain. So as we continue this morning, I'm going to share pieces of my own story. Um, and I would like to just uh, pray to start us off this morning. God, uh, I just thank you so much uh, for the work that you've done in my life that has led to me just being able to stand up here this morning. And I just pray over, I know, um, because of the statistics that we're going to look at in just a second, that there are people in this room that are struggling, God. And I know that there's people in this room that have a loved one that are struggling. And so um, as we as a church hope to have this place be somewhere that is safe for vulnerability and for brokenness, God, because you are for those things, that I just pray uh, that as I speak this morning that... Um, that you would, you would be the one speaking, God, that you would uh, speak to someone's heart um, and let them know that they're not alone, God. But please just be with me, help me, and uh, I just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to share some facts, and uh, these are probably not surprising to anyone. It's probably very familiar, things that you've seen before. Um, but if you look up here, these are, uh, th this is the latest, so 2021 is, the, is kind of the latest of, of these statistics that have been um, compiled, but one in five U.S. adults experience mental illness each year. One in 20 U.S. adults experience serious mental illness each year, and then one in six youth, six to 17, experience a mental health disorder each year. Um, and, and the reason that the wording is a little different is because some, some mental health illnesses uh, aren't officially diagnosed until somebody is a little bit older. But 50% of all lifetime mental illness actually begins by the age of 14 and 75% by the age of 24. So most of the time when someone's struggling, they've been struggling really their entire life for the most part. And this last statistic is, is really hard to hear, that suicide is the second leading cause of death among people 10 to 14. And that statistic even alone is part of the reason that we're talking about this today, that we want um, this church to be a place for young people to feel that they can share the struggles that they're, that, that they're going through and a place where they feel like there's people, there's adults in their life that they can go to for help. Um, and so with that, um, 
yeah, we're going to begin this morning, but as, as we've thought about, uh, kind of with, with the last, what, three, three years of our lives, right, with social isolation and with kind of just the heightened um, everything that's happened over the past three years, most of us are very aware of these mental health struggles, of mental health struggles in general, right? Um, and many people, all of us, understandably went through times of feeling anxious or depressed or both uh, during the pandemic, right? Now, to add a little bit of levity, where there's not a ton, uh, some people uh, who have dealt with issues our whole lives, so I'm talking about myself, were like, welcome to the party, right? Welcome to anxiety. Uh, I had never felt more prepared than when most of the world started wiping down their groceries and packages, right? You know, most of us were like, yeah, we know, we know what we're doing. But joking aside, right, joking is a mechanism, right? You gotta laugh so that you don't cry sometimes. But in all seriousness, I wanna speak today to people who are dealing with a mental health challenge and to those who have loved ones or a friend who does. And from the statistics, right, that we just saw, really everyone in this room falls into one of those categories. Now, um, in my nerdiness of, of studying psychology and, and the class that I teach and things like that, um, some of these things I just know, knew from college, but as I kind of was like, let me look at our, our history just in this past couple of weeks I've been studying of just the treatment of mental, mental health in, historically, right? Not great, not great. So if you read a little through history from like the oldest medical books that, that are there, all the way through even just like the past 100 years, you'll see people who were struggling with mental health things being hidden by family members, right? There were exorcisms that were happening. There was bloodletting. If you don't know what that is, they thought like if they allowed people to bleed out those things, somehow, somehow the, the badness or negativity would go away. There were people that were sent to workhouses, right? Kind of away, away from society. And lobotomies, right? If you haven't heard about that, that's what was happening. I mean, that's in the last 100 years. Not great, right? Not great. But psychology as a science was really only established in like the late 1800s, um, something that was able to, you know, be quantifiable, experiment, things like that. So think about in the same way that before germ theory uh, came about in like the 1860s, we really thought that uh, things like plagues and things like that, that, that illnesses were spread through like bad air or just spontaneously generated, things like that. So like it's been like only around 150 years that doctors knew that they should wash their hands before they do surgery. Like that's new, right? So in the same way, our understanding of the way that our brains work and how that's connected to mental health is very new. Like the first MRI, um, the, you know, really good picture of our brain wasn't done until 1977. So that's not a long time ago. So we now have, you know, in, in current time, uh, what we call mental illness, right? And so for a long time, it was just like writing about individual symptoms um, that you can find like in old medical journals and thing like, things like that. Now, it wasn't until this, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, um, this hasn't really been around. Now, this is like the newest one, the DSM-5. When I was in college, we were like two back from this, I think. But it includes the word statistical 
because it's a classification that can be used for studying like the prevalence of various types of illnesses, right? So the first DSM um, up to the current DSM-5 is where we get what we now have, like these diagnoses of anxiety disorder, bipolar disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, dis depressive disorder, schizophrenia, and so on, right? The book's really thick. There's a lot of stuff in there. So kind of going from that, now I read, and Eric mentioned this book last week, I read through Finding Jesus in the Storm, The Spiritual Lives of Christians and Mental Health um, Challenges by John Swinton. Um, and we can, if anybody is interested in it, uh, we can uh, point you to that. But he interviewed in his book many people who have um, struggled with, with mental health illness, mental health challenges. And one of the things that he discovered is that a diagnosis, like one of the things that I mentioned, it can have both good and bad effects, right? Before a diagnosis of like bipolar disorder, for example, you know, a doctor or somebody who was trying to help, they would just listen to like the entire story of that person. Like what are all the things, that, you know, their emotions, their thoughts, their experience. Well, John Swinton would argue that with that label, he would call like the diagnosis is actually a very thin description. So he talked about thin and thick descriptions. So it might be helpful to start treatment to just say, well, this person has bipolar disorder, for example. But like that doesn't tell the whole story of that person and what, you know, the, what they're actually, what they're struggling with. So, you know, even as today, as I share my story and maybe diagnoses, that's part, that's just a little part of my whole story, right? So as we do continue today, one of the things I wanna caution all of us um, is to not use these diagnoses that I mentioned flippantly, right? You're not OCD because you want your house to be really clean or you're really organized. Your friend isn't acting bipolar because their mood changed from yesterday, right? These diagnoses are lifelong struggles that have carried a lot of stigma, and we should be really aware of that. Now, another thing to be sensitive about and aware of is that many people will experience mental health challenges um, in their life, right? In the face of grief or trauma, many people, especially if we look at the, the statistics from earlier, experience depression or anxiety that needs to be treated. And sometimes these challenges are just for a season. But on the other hand, some people, because of reasons that are still being researched and understood, begin to experience mental health challenges at a young age and deal with those things their entire lives, right? It's like the difference of like an acute illness ver versus a chronic condition. And in those cases, I feel like the passage that Eric shared uh, two weeks ago actually um, feels really appropriate. And so this is 2 Corinthians uh, 12, and this is 7 to 10. So this is Paul speaking, right? It says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, like Eric said two weeks ago, we don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was, right? We don't know if it was a physical struggle. We don't know if it was a mental struggle. But I feel like 
I can relate to Paul. From time to time, um, or from the time I can remember, sorry, I've dealt with anxiety. I grew up in a loving, consistent, safe home, so I don't really have you know, a trauma to point to and say, oh, this is why I was struggling at that time. But I do remember sitting in first grade, hearing a siren outside, you know, going past the room, and just knowing that something happened to my mom, and, and that must have been going to my house. There was also a time, and this, this is, I mean, it sounds so strange, that I didn't eat sugar or anything that a seven-year-old could perceive as sugar for like six months because I was so afraid that I was going to get a cavity. Now, I didn't tell my parents about it, and I don't really think that I understood that the way my brain worked was different, right? Now, I could tell you a lot more stories from that time, but fast forward to middle school, high school, and college, right? Now, this is when my worrying and my endless checking actually got me rewarded. I would study for hours most nights, right? You know, a parent, parent's dream. And my, my parents never put pressure on me for, for things with school. And yes, all my studying and double checking um, that I had every assignment and paper got me straight A's, right? The relief that I felt for maybe like a day when I would see the 4.0 on my report card or an A on exam, it would go away pretty quickly, right? And I would just start to focus on that next assignment or exam. So for like eight to 10 years of my life, I was heavily rewarded for my mental health struggles, right? At the time, you know, I just thought that the constant stress and like compulsion to double and triple check that like the paper that I was taking to college with me didn't somehow just like disappear out of my bag on my way to school. I just thought that was being responsible, right? But when I graduated college, I remember feeling like a huge relief. Like I thought I would just feel better because all my stress was related to school and studying. Well, I was wrong. So at this point in my life, I had actually, I had gone to counseling for a short time in high school. I had been dealing just with a rough time and, and I had gone through um, a time of depression and my parents took me to counseling and I wasn't really uh, tr wanting to do that and so I wasn't really wanting to really participate with it a ton even though I went. Um, but I had never actually been able to, to see that the constant stress and anxiety as anything but related to school. So I, I would never had really talked about that necessarily in that time. Now, my anxiety, like to the outside, it didn't really hinder my everyday functioning. It only made me really successful to everyone looking in from the outside. But inside, I was constantly stressed, right? Now, I started a full-time job um, after, after college, working as a child life specialist, and so I worked at a hospital. Um, that job means that you're there to help families and kids and teenagers deal with the stress um, of being in the hospital. And as you can imagine, working with children in a hospital setting, I actually worked at a Trauma One hospital in downtown Cleveland, and so my job was really stressful. So it was easy for me during that time in my life to just point any mental stress and anxiety I was experiencing on the fact that my job was really hard. You know, sitting with a family whose child is dying is really hard. You know, being, going day after day to talk to families who were in the hospital for over a year was really hard. But it was things like the fact that a lot of days I had to actually walk back like two or three times to check if I'd locked the door. 
that caused me the most stress. And you better believe I was highly responsible, right? I was good at my job. Now, I eventually stayed home with Kendall when Kendall was born, so like 15 years ago. Um, and my new focus at that time, when I think back, one of the things was our budget, right? So we, you know, now we only had one income, and so I needed to track every penny even more of what we spent, and I was really good at it. But I remember one time, as I, was, as I was thinking back when I was preparing today, that I was like off by like literally like two or three dollars in our checkbook, and I could not figure out what it was from. And I spent hours and hours, and I remember Eric, and I rem like at the time, I think even my parents, we were around, and like they're like, it's fine, like it's okay, you know, just make the adjustment and move on. But I couldn't, I couldn't. Now, as I sat for preparing today, writing these things down, you know, I could, I could share with you many more examples, right? But I grieve for the five, 10, and 25-year-old versions of myself that thought the amount of mental pain that I was experiencing was somewhat normal, right? I was just high-strung. I was a worrier. I was a type A personality. Um, but quick interactions or like mistakes that I made would turn into hours and hours of going over them in my head. And then we had Kieran, right? And so that's, you know, 12 years ago, almost 13. And 11 months later, he was diagnosed with a heart defect. And many of you know and have heard this part of our story. Um, and I actually, this summer at camp, I shared a blog post that I wrote about some of the time uh, with students at camp. Now, my anxiety had a home for like the next three years of my life. And how could it not, right? I was a mom with a kid that was gonna need open heart surgery. So how could I pull apart like the normal amount of concern that any mom would have, right, with the worry and the disordered way that my brain worked, that I wasn't fully aware of at the time. Now, the day before Kieran's second birthday party, I had my first panic attack. And I remember laying in bed, and my heart was racing to the level that it doesn't when I'm like doing like extreme workouts. And like I knew probably what was going on, but my heart would not stop racing. And so Eric eventually took me to the emergency room. You know, I, I told them that I was pretty sure that I was having a panic attack, but my heart rate was very high. And so they had to run all the tests like to, you know, to check. And my physical heart was fine, right? They prescribed me a couple days of Ativan, like an anxiety medicine, and I think I took like one or two and placed them in our medicine cabinet knowing I could handle this. Right? I didn't want to need that medicine. I could figure it out on my own, and I just had to get through the next two years of life anyway, right, until Karen's surgery, because then everything would be fine. Now, I decided that I needed to go back to counseling, or really just go to counseling for the first time in my adult life during that time. And it was extremely helpful. You know, I highly, highly recommend counseling for every person. I think it could be helpful for everyone. You know, talking to someone not related to your everyday life, someone who has an outside perspective is invaluable. And my counselor gave me tools, and for a time I felt better, right? I had, uh, between my counseling, like the coping mechanisms that uh, she gave me and my relationship with God, I was, I was doing pretty well. You know, I'd started running long distances and my counselor encouraged me to keep doing that as a stress release. 
And with all of these tools, I got through those years, and God was so faithful. You know, on some of the hardest days, like when Kieran had surgery, my faith carried me through. I, I really had total peace, peace that could have only come through him. Now I'm going to skip ahead. So uh, I'm going to skip ahead to 2018. Now it was 2014. We both moved from Ohio to Illinois for Eric's ministry job, and in that, in, within that same year, Kieran had to have heart surgery. Now, by 2018, Kieran's surgery was like three years in the past, and we had moved again from one campus of the same church to another, um, and everything was really good. Eric was the campus pastor, working with amazing people that he loved. You know, we owned our house that we loved. Everything was really good. So why was I experiencing so much anxiety? You know, I was homeschooling, and that can be really stressful. I was leading worship, you know, and leading all the tech volunteers at our care ministry. I loved it, but, you know, scheduling people, that can be stressful. But I was actually starting to feel, like, physical anxiety symptoms. And it was, it was like, hard to take a deep breath at times. My heart was racing. You know, and I did go to the doctor during that time, and I found out that I was, like, dangerously anemic. Um, and that led to more testing and not being allowed to run or, like, do any sort of, like, intense cardio for a time until my levels, you know, got back to normal. And running had been my stress relief. So I was like, oh, my goodness, you know, what am I going to do without that? Now, the intense mental pain and obsessive thoughts about my health during that time, I can't really fully describe. Um, and Eric and my parents are the only people I really shared any of it with. And all of you are actually some of the first people that are hearing about all of this. You know, throughout my whole adult life, I've been in ministry. You know, Eric started in youth ministry about like six months into our marriage. And the stigma that mental health struggles have had in the church are real. The opinions of people that if you're worrying or you just, you know, you just don't have enough faith. And I will stand here and boldly tell you that they are wrong. I had enough faith to leave everything I knew and move for Eric's job in ministry. You know, I had enough faith to hand over my son to surgeons who would stop his heart from beating and operate on it. So don't believe for a minute that I didn't have enough faith, right? Now, it took faith in that summer in 2018 to pray to God like Paul did to please take this away from me. I prayed that all the time. But I also prayed that summer that if he couldn't take away this mental pain and physical anxiety symptoms, I prayed for him to allow it to get bad enough that I would know that I had no choice but to get more help. Now, I called a Christian counseling practice, you know, during that time and started seeing a psychologist there. I still remember, like, sitting on our bed, making that call. And um, after a couple months of meeting with her and talking about my history and anxieties, it was very apparent that I had been dealing with obsessive-compulsive disorder my entire life. You know, like when I worried about something, it wasn't a passing thought, it was a problem to be solved. If I was worried about something, I would research or ruminate about it for hours to try to find some sort of mental relief to be certain that whatever bad thing was not gonna happen. But that relief doesn't ever really come. Now my counselor suggested that I go see the psychiatrist in their practice. And I had told her when I first went 
that I really did not want to take medication, right? I had avoided it my whole life, believing that it would be admitting failure. You know, I was a pastor's wife. I had faith. I could figure this out on my own. But my prayer was answered that summer and that fall. God did not take away my obsessive thoughts or my physical symptoms. Instead, they had gotten worse, a lot worse. And trust me, I know every verse in the Bible about worrying anxiety. I know that I'm supposed to, to be anxious about nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present my request to God. So when I cried and I sat in the psychiatrist's office as we talked, I knew I needed help, and if this was the way that God was going to help me, I was finally ready to take that step. Now, I cried and I prayed as I took my first pill and my second, but I had faith. And I got a mug that said, joy comes in the morning, um, having faith that, that this could be the way that God was going to help me. And this is Psalm 30 uh, that that this, uh, this saying comes from, and this is what it says. Lord, my God, I called you for help and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Sing the praises of the Lord. You, his faithful people, praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only for a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What is gained if I'm silenced, if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth. Sorry, guys. Oop, I'm going to go back. There we go. And clothe me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. And every time I used my mug, I would remember God's promises. And I continued to meet with my counselor and psychiatrist. And by a week into taking my medication, the physical symptoms had stopped. I could take a deep breath, and my heart wasn't racing. And eventually, the obsessive thoughts that caused me to research for hours, I was better able to control. And what I thought for years would be my greatest weakness was God's love for me. I had never known a life without com almost constant anxiety. And now I was better able to use the tools from counseling and my faith and prayer to calm my anxious thoughts. You know, I remember hearing about, you know, people before they get glasses, especially like kids, they don't really realize like that the world is unblurry, right? Blurry is their reality. And I was experiencing an unblurry world for the first time in my life. And I wish I could tell you that my struggle with anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder is gone, but that's not how medication works. I think sometimes people do have the wrong assumption, and maybe that's where some stigma comes from, that depression or anxiety medica medication alone can solve these problems. But I still have to identify when OCD is trying to take a hold of a new theme in my life. 
You know, for years for me it was school, and then my job, and then Kieran's health. And OCD will make you believe that like whatever the new thing is, is different. Like this new worry or, or obsession, this is real. You know, just in the past year, I had some abnormal blood work that I had to like wait a month to retest, and it was work for me to not let that send me to a bad place. You know, I can still have really bad days. And I still have the urge sometimes to, and maybe this is, you know, this is something that people deal with, but it's, it's I think, different when your brain works a little differently. I have the urge to turn around to check if I close the garage door. Uh, when we go on vacation, Eric still has to be the last one to leave the house to make sure that like everything is locked and taken care of. But every time that I can kind of turn away and not do some of those things is a win. Now, in his book uh, that I mentioned, John Swinton describes different kinds of healing, and I really related to this. So he refers to, some, to testimonial healing, and this is what it says. Testimonial healing occurs when a person is free to give his or her testimony in all its fullness without fear of judgment and retribution. John's gospel is the gospel of testimony. The idea of testimony runs like a golden thread through that gospel. Those who know Jesus, those who have experienced his transforming presence, are called to testify at what they have seen. Testimony is a legal metaphor that originally related to standing up in court and telling the judge what you know and what you've seen. Testimonial healing comes when you're able to stand before the people of God and honestly tell them what God has done and what God has not done in your life. You know, we're used to the idea of testimonying to all the wonderful things that God has done in our lives, and that is good and proper and beautiful. But when was the last time you heard a public or private testimony that suggests that God is good, but that God has not done things we might want God to do? Being with God includes disappointments. You know, sharing this testimony with you um, is about five years in the making, because as I talk to my counselor, um, about my experience and my role as a pastor's wife and leader in the church, she believed that there would be a time um, that I would have to share within the church. And even you know, in the past few weeks, as I've been studying and really over the past year thinking that it was probably time, um, I was like, what am I doing? I don't have to share this, right? And I didn't, I didn't have to get up and share today but I also did, because I believe that for too long, mental health has been taboo in the church, and some well-meaning Christians have left people in bondage by saying insensitive things about praying harder or having enough faith. And I wanna tell you that if that's you, God knows your heart. He is heartbroken over the pain that you're experiencing, and he's near to you even if you can't feel him right now. And I wanna tell you that God works in our brokenness. I should be no more embarrassed holding up my medication here this morning than someone with diabetes showing you their insulin because God works in our brokenness. You know, Psalm 34 verse 18 says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and save those, saves those who are crushed in spirit. And we look back at the words of Paul that we read earlier, uh, look for the word weakness, right? God can work with weakness. It's pride that he has trouble with. 
when we look at um, 2 Corinthians again, it says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. And if you keep reading, it says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And it's true that we are all weak and broken in different ways. You know, those of us with mental health struggles and those of us without. But the hardest part of my struggle was admitting the extent of my brokenness. This world is broken. Eric mentioned that in, in the last weeks. It's not the way it's supposed to be. That includes broken relationships and disease and death and mental health challenges as well. But I wanna to propose today that brokenness can be beautiful, right? God does not cause pain, but he does use it. Nothing is wasted by him. You know, as I was researching for today, I came across this and I just, I think it's a perfect representation. Um, this is kintsugi, if I'm pre uh, pronouncing that correctly. And this is a Japanese technique for repairing pottery with seams of gold. And the word means golden joinery in Japanese. This repairs the brokenness in a way that makes the object more beautiful and even more unique than it was prior to being broken. Instead of hiding the scars, it makes a feature of them. You know, I stand in front of you today like these broken pieces of china. They were created to be beautiful, but then they were broken. And these artists, instead of hiding the scars and the brokenness, decided to make them even more visible, to put them on display. And I would suggest even more beautiful. You know, it's in the gold repairs that we can actually see the handiwork of the one who's repairing. In the same way, it's in our healing scars, in sharing our stories, that we can see God. You know, any strength or healing that I share today is a testimony of the grace and power of God. And whether he uses the wisdom of a psychologist or counselor or the biochemistry of medication, he is the true healer and craftsman. And like the end of Psalm 30 says, you turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me, clothed me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. You know, so what does this look like um, in the midst of brokenness, right? What does healing look like? And there's a lot that comes with that, and, and that's why we're offering some of the groups. You know, we want, we want to do this together. But I would suggest that healing comes through presence. You know, first healing comes through being present. I think sometimes, you know, in the pace of life and with the distractions of our phones and TV and, and things, we can kind of numb ourselves to our own brokenness, but sometimes we need to sit and experience our brokenness in order to know that we need help. So instead of filling it with distractions, we become aware of it. You know, if that's you right now, as a church, we want you to get the help you need. And like I mentioned a second ago, you heard of the groups that we have available for men and for women and for young people, for those struggling um, the pain of divorce. 
And if you're in need of recommendation for a mental health professional, you can find any one of the pastors after service, and if they, you know, they'll direct you to the right person. And you know, they have recommendations of people that would be glad to, to talk with you. The other thing is that healing comes through God being present with us. You know, even though mental health challenges often need professional help through counseling and possibly medication, it's not you know, mutually exclusive from the power of healing through the presence of God. You know, I know that any healing that I've seen in my life could only be possible through him. And my heart aches for people struggling with, with the not, without the knowledge of God's presence in their life. You know, I have felt this on the depths of these verses myself. And this is Psalm 139, and it says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. You know, even in the hardest times, this verse reminded me that no matter how hard things get, God is there with me. He is not afraid of darkness. Even the darkness isn't dark to him. He's in it with us. You know, we could talk for another hour or two just about God's way that he promised to be with us. He loves us so much that he sent Jesus, Emmanuel, that means God with us, to demonstrate that love. But often God's love is demonstrated through other people. And so another way um, forward with healing is that we are present with others. In the church, we're called to bear each other's burdens. Uh, Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And 2 Corinthians 1, uh, 3 to 4 says, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. You know, often comfort is just presence. Many people with mental health struggles feel alone. They often don't need advice, they just need someone to sit with them. And I know this is not easy. You know, sitting with the discomfort of someone else's pain causes us pain. But this is one of the greatest gifts that we can give to a friend, not being afraid of being present in their pain. As we close this morning, get close to closing, I wanna leave you with one last quote from John Swinton's book. And this is more for a friend or loved one or church family wondering what can they do to help. So uh, uh, John Swinton speaks in this chapter about lament and how healthy it is for us to lament and cry out to God on our behalf and on the behalf of others. And then there was someone that he interviewed that, that commented on this idea, and this is what they said. But then saying that, talking about lament, Actually, it was also really helpful to be in a congregation of people who were still worshiping God, still being happy clappy, still being hopeful when I was just like, I just can't do this. Because it meant they were like, well, you, you can't do it, but we can do it for you. 
which I just really appreciated. People would be standing alongside me in prayer, like during worship time, they'd have a hand on my shoulder while they were just fully singing and worshiping and rejoicing. And I was just a wreck, crying. But I found that incredibly profound because it's that sense of someone willing to be alongside me and yet they were not forgetting the truth that I couldn't grab a hold of at that point. In a minute, I'm gonna to pray to close for this morning and, and I'll invite the bands to come up now. But I wanna thank you for hearing parts of my story this morning. And I'm very thankful for a church that embraces brokenness and vulnerability. And I wanna to say to anyone who feels like they're in the same place as this quote this morning, you are in a place where, you know, maybe it's hard for you to sing these words when we sang earlier in worship. I want you to know that there's brothers and sisters in Christ around you to hold you up and to be present with you in this time. So just for everyone during these last two songs, I want you to feel free to take any posture you need during worship. It's okay if you can't feel these words right now. If you need to remain seated and pray, maybe for yourself, for the struggles that you're facing right now, or maybe you have a heavy heart for a loved one this morning. But please don't leave today without allowing someone to pray for you and with you. And if you need help finding the next step of, step of healing, please come talk to someone. Come talk to one of the people that's gonna be up front after we sing. They have resources to help get you connected. And I just, I, I love this picture of the, the gold, right? This is God, God's healing for our hearts, for us. And I know that I've experienced it testifying to that this morning. And so I just wanna pray um, and thank God for the healing that he has done and for the healing that he wants to do in the future. But I wanna pray for those of you this morning too who, who maybe aren't feeling that right now, who are struggling. Maybe you're watching online. So let's pray. God, I just thank you so much for this morning. I thank you um, for the years that have, have led to me being able to share this morning, God. Um, and God, I, I wanna, I, I hope that me sharing this morning might be uh, the start of healing for someone else, God, to know that within the church, you can say, I am broken, God, I need help and that people are not gonna judge you for that. We are all broken, we all need healing. And so I pray for anyone who's struggling this morning, God, please let them know that your heart breaks with them, that you are with them in that dark place. And please let us be a church to come alongside every person, no matter what's happening in their life, God. And I pray for um, the groups that are meeting I pray uh, for the healing that's gonna happen in those places and just for the presence, the presence with you, the presence with each other, God. Um, God, I just thank you for the promises that you make never to leave us. And as we, as we continue to worship this morning, God, I pray for those of us who can sing these words and we do that for ourselves, God, but also for our brothers and sisters that maybe can't do that today. So I just pray, um, I pray for those who might need to, to sit down, God, that we, would, um, that we would be worshiping for them and with them, and that we would, if that's our friend, maybe put a hand on their shoulder, God, and say that I'm with you in this.
So God, um, we thank you so much for Jesus that you sent Emmanuel, God with us, uh, to, to show us how much um, that you want him to be present with us. And so I pray all these things in Jesus' name this morning. Amen.